This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 400, The Second Battle of Ruwisat Ridge. Last time, Rommel's most recent push yielded some success, but not enough to keep moving forward. This was matched by Auchinleck's pathetic, massive northern attack, which gained him nothing. As things stood, by the end of July 16, 1942, both sides were tired. But Churchill wanted another push by Auchinleck, if only to free men up who might be needed elsewhere in the Middle East. And the C&C would comply, though his men needed a break, and he needed more of everything. The same was true for Rommel, who was forced to send a message to Berlin saying, My men have been fighting straight for eight weeks, and we are so close. But the real reason he was riding, and not fighting, was the Italians. Their infantry had let him down time and again, and he found himself having to sprinkle his men amongst the Italians to give them some backbone, which weakened his German units. He went on in his message, I was hoping to hold here at El Alamein until resupplied and made stronger with reinforcements, but that may not be possible. The New Zealanders and Australians, they're tough fighters. The British are only getting better with their artillery, and this was because of Auchinleck's changes, and his most experienced men were now dead. The Allies were suffering as well, but had a better supply situation because, one, they were closer to Alexandria than he was to Tripoli, and the various RAF units were cutting deep into whatever he had left. He estimated in his message that they were destroying about 30 vehicles a day. Fortunately, he had dozens of captured Allied lorries to compensate. To wit, he had enough fuel to be on the defensive, but not enough to take the fight to the enemy. And finally, in the future, he wanted more German equipment, not Italian-made items, especially special tanks and 88mm guns. Ironically, for the access, Rommel was pushing Rome and Berlin to keep fighting, Whereas for the Allies, it was Churchill pushing Auchinleck to keep the pressure on the enemy, 
until they were driven far away from the Egyptian border. And as Churchill had practically said in his last message, when's your next attack, Auchinleck got to work. And he had taken a page from Rommel's book in trying to be unpredictable. And he would repeat that now. Previously, the CNC had pointed his men at the vulnerable Italians. Now he would go after the Germans. Because if he could break them, then there may well be a dash to the west by Rommel and chase given by the Allies. And it was to be the Ruisot Ridge again that the Allies would hit. If the Ruisot Ridge could be thought of as an arrow pointing west, then a mile away and just north is the Deir El Sheen Depression. And just south of the Ruisot Ridge, again about a mile to the west, was the El Mir Depression. See episode cover. Auchinleck's idea was to amass his guns and tanks and smash the German panzers in that narrow area between the depressions. If the Axis defensive line could be ruptured there, then Rommel would be forced to pull back or soon have enemy forces operating in his rear, and he did not have the supplies to lose any more to sabotage. Hopefully, this would work and get Rommel away from the Egyptian border and get Churchill off his back. And yet, the first order of business was to remove the Axis forces still on the western half of the ridge. As usual, Gott's 13th Corps was tasked with this attack. First, during the night, with heavy artillery support, the 161st Indian Motor Brigade of the 5th Indian Division, along with the 6th New Zealand Brigade, were to smash into the enemy forces aligned across the Ruizat Ridge. Next, and hopefully while it was still dark, they would locate and remove enough mines so the newly arrived 23rd Armored Brigade of the 8th Armored Division could roll past them and smash into the panzers, those on the ridge, and then just west of it. The New Zealanders said, make sure this time we have enough armored support, to which the tank commander said, you got it, but they would not be moving out until first light. Why? because they considered it suicidal to drive a tank on a ridge at night with mines somewhere out there. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. During the early morning hours of July 21st, the Indian and New Zealand units moved out and reached their objectives. Yet, as it was dark, there was confusion. And when first light came, 
the Germans reacted faster than the British armor. The German metal beasts laid into the hapless Allied infantry, scattering them even more than they originally were due to darkness. To be sure, the Allied guns and tanks tried to rush up to help, but they were too late and then scattered themselves, as not enough mines had been cleared. Once again, the coordination between Allied armor and infantry was insufficient, regardless of the reasons. Once again, the New Zealanders would pay for this. But still trying to turn things around, the 23rd Armor Brigade was sent in anyways, guns blazing. But before too long, some 87 of their tanks were lost, either to German guns or German mines. Only later would the British find out that the Germans had placed both panzer divisions on the ridge. Rommel had anticipated Auchinleck again and was able to save fuel by having the enemy come to him. Still, Auchinleck needed to show something, so kept the fighting going until July 23rd. But as his surprise nighttime opening move had failed, so too would the larger attack. The New Zealanders had just lost another 900 men, with nothing to show for it. New Zealand Brigadier Howard Kippenberger, who had just lost more of his men, would later write of the Ruisat battles. At this time, there was, throughout the 8th Army, not only in the New Zealand Division, a most intense distrust, almost hatred, of our armor. Everywhere, one heard tales of the other arms being let down. It was regarded as axiomatic that tanks would not be where they were wanted on time. For what it is worth, my opinion was that we should never get anywhere until armor was placed under command of infantry brigadiers and advanced on the same axis as the infantry. For some of the last four attacks by Auchinleck, when he had the 13th Corps attack the enemy, he also had the 30th Corps create a diversion. Problem was, this had never worked, and the diversions only lost the 30th Corps more men each time. So when the CNC said, right, let's do this again in the north, like we did last time, when the southern attack failed, men like Morrishead and Pinar were less than enthusiastic. But Auchinleck said, we are doing this. So the next attack was started during the night of July 26th. Due east by only three miles from the El Alamein perimeter is the Matira Ridge. Just southeast of this ridge, the South Africans were to make a gap in the Axis minefield. Meanwhile, the Australian Brigade would run up and capture the eastern end of that ridge. After this, but while it was still dark, with a gap in the minefield created and the Australians covering their northern flank by being on the ridge, the 69th Brigade from 50th Division would charge through that opening clearing any further mines west, and then at first light, the tanks of the 1st Armored Division would pour through and drive Rommel all the way back to Fuca, thus fulfilling Churchill's orders. But, as this was the same two sides as last time, with the same basic plan as last time, with no changes made to coordination since last time, the results were the same as last time. Some gaps were not made, the tanks couldn't find those gaps, and the Germans responded vigorously, as last time, when attacked. When the smoke cleared, Auchinleck had just lost 
two Northumbrian battalions, and one Australian battalion, a total of 1,000 men. Their positions were overrun by panzers, and the infantry, again, had no artillery or tank support. The offensive, such as it was, was called off before July 27th had come to an end. As Auchinleck had been the aggressor recently, he let his men rest from his fifth failure, and Rommel did not attack because he did not have the means. Both sides reverted to a defensive mindset. They both began to lay down thousands of mines, turning the area into a replica of the Great War. Each mine that went into the sand made the area more impassable for both sides. While this was going on, the CNC's chief of staff at HQ 8th Army, Major General Chink Dorman Smith, laid down the law for his boss. In other words, he appraised the situation in honest terms. No more rose-colored glasses. Here's the gist. No matter what the Prime Minister says next, 8th Army cannot attack again until at least mid-September. Next, Rommel will, of course, attack again before then, probably in the south, to make an end run, and probably in mid-August. Next, when we do attack, we should hit them in the north, and the divisions that are now arriving, they should be trained specially for this. This was honest enough, but it did not capture the climate of defeatism all around 8th Army. There had been too many failed attacks, too many lost men due to poor coordination, and too many retreats. No, what was needed was new leadership, for the results showed that Auchinleck was good enough to check Rommel, but not beat Rommel, at least not in the foreseeable future. And sensing Auchinleck's limitations, the CIGS, or Chief of Imperial General Staff, General Sir Alan Brooke, had made a fateful decision. A few days prior, on July 17th, the CIGS had decided to travel to Cairo himself, assess the situation, and make suggestions for changes. But first, he had to meet with the Americans, as the President had sent over a special mission to discuss America's entry into the war. General George Marshall, Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army, Admiral Ernest J. King, C&C U.S. Fleet and Chief of Naval Operations, and Harry Hopkins, former U.S. Secretary of Commerce and now Chief Foreign Policy Advisor and liaison to Allied leaders for the President, arrived in London. They met with their counterparts and they delivered FDR's message which was, it is still possible to organize and execute a cross-channel invasion in 1942. Now, FDR already knew that Churchill and his military planners would say no to this. So, he gave Marshall and King another option, but only after the cross-channel route had failed. It did And so the two men in American uniforms said, our president wants American troops fighting in the European theater this year. What are our options? To which they already knew the answer. What would please the prime minister and the president both was a revived super gymnast, an allied invasion of French North Africa. Both sides agreed on this and the Americans took this back to Washington. 
On July 30th, FDR approved it, and then Churchill, as was his wont, renamed it Torch. But a handshake and agreement and a date and a name does not a plan make. The details still had to be worked out. The Americans wanted to land at Morocco in case the Axis occupied Gibraltar and closed the strait down to Allied shipping. The British countered with, besides other things, the Atlantic beaches in the fall would be dangerous, at best. Next, the British were aiming for an American landing in mid-October, so the Americans could then push east while the arrested 8th Army pushed west. But Washington countered with, we were thinking more like early November, and some additional training would be nice for our troops. There were other issues to be worked out, but on August 9th, General Dwight Eisenhower, who had been appointed commander of the European Theater of Operations, U.S. Army, stationed in London, offered up his first draft. The British were not happy, again, due to the time difference. The official British reply was, in this case, we should exchange training for speed. To which the Americans said, though with a bit more tact, yeah, how did that work out for you in Norway in 1940 and Greece in 1941? The room suddenly got very cold. Eisenhower went back to the drawing board. It was the Americans this time that were unhappy with draft number two as it put their men at risk, should, as they were to land at Oran in Algeria, again, if Gibraltar was closed. Those Americans could not be supported and might be wiped out. Clearly, this needed more work, but the Prime Minister's input could not be asked for because he was out of town. As Chief of the Imperial Staff Brooke was about to leave for Cairo, Churchill told him, I'll tag along but it was to be only the first part of the Prime Minister's trip, as afterwards he had the unenviable task of flying to Moscow to tell Stalin that, instead of a cross-channel attack, the Americans, which the Americans and Soviets wanted, they were to land in North Africa, which Stalin had made clear he thought this was nothing more than a sideshow. Next, Churchill would then have to work up the courage to ask the Russian warlord, after telling him no to the Channel Crossing, did Moscow really have it in them to hold the Panzers back from the Caucasus, which, if they failed, could affect London's Middle East policy. The entire region could come unraveled, just as the Americans were finally getting involved. So, Alan Brooke had to determine how to fix Eighth Army to Churchill's satisfaction, and the Prime Minister had to face the Man of Steel and tell him no, and then ask him, can you hold? It would have been most difficult to determine who had the more challenging assignment. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just wanted to say hello to the latest members. Um, I just want to keep this going, again, because it makes a huge difference here, so I want to thank you. Let's see, Sarah Dingman in Orchid Park, New York. Thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, Michael Bidello, Bidello from Arroyo Grande, California. And Michael made a donation besides. So, Michael, thank you very much. You're my new best friend, and I hope you have a blessed new year. Uh, let's see here. Duncan McGinnis, Ashland, Kentucky. 
And I believe this may have been a gift from someone else to Duncan. So if that's true, thank you to that person. And Duncan, I hope you enjoy the 200 and whatever episodes are out there uh, as far as the membership goes. Um, Tony Lupo from the Warrior Next Door podcast uh, ponied up. So thank you, Tony, because there was no way in hell I was giving you that for free, the way you treat me. We'll talk about, we'll have our lawyers talk about that later. Um, And then Serendipitous Films, Inc., in Bedford, Texas, uh, became a member. So whoever on that staff, thank you very much. Um, Brian McNulty from Arundel, Maine. So thank you very much, Brian. Andrew Workman at Aberdeen, Washington. And Charlotte Newfield from Otago, New Zealand. Hope I didn't get that wrong, Charlotte, but thank you very much. Um, I think I covered all the donations last time besides Michael's. So again, welcome aboard. I hope you enjoy the 208, 209 episodes. Um, As this is the 400 episode, for those of you that were expecting something special, an interview or whatever, uh, I didn't have time to throw anything together. I didn't plan anything. It's the new year, so people are busy. But anyway, we just keep the story going. We're almost to pedestal, which will then allow us to, um, after we finish pedestal, to get back to the Eastern Front. So we'll see how it goes. But you can see how Rommel as impetuous as he is, and he's always the firstest with the mostest, is good in the short term. But overall, it's not a good strategy, and he has to retreat almost every time that he advances. And here's Auchinleck, who's able to at least check him. But Churchill is still looking for that thoroughbred general who will take the fight to the Axis forces in North Africa and drive them all the way back. And you, you can see it coming. I mean, you all know what happens, but you can see it building in these episodes. So I just wanted to point that out because um, a lot of people ask questions about all the various generals. Why do they keep changing them so much? Because of Rommel and Churchill's impatience. So we will see you as soon as we can with the next episode. Um, yeah, that's it for now. Take care, everyone.